Folks, welcome to a very special Bay Area edition of The Corner Store. I'm your host, Kevin Koval, and I am uh, on the campus of St. Mary's College with the incredible and legendary Bay Area journalist and scholar and historian, a uh, man who has put on for the culture tirelessly. Um, David D. is in The Corner Store. Welcome, sir. Good to be on here. How you doing, brother? I'm good, man. Thank you so much, man. And and, and we just we, we just had uh, you know a really interesting uh, 45 50 minute conversation with some of the students at St. Mary. Um, but you know I, I'm excited to even in your bio, man. I did not know that. Uh, I'm not surprised, but you used to rhyme back in the day. Is that, uh, yeah, these are facts. I was in a couple of crews. Um, one was out of Co-op City, called TDK Total Deaf Crew. Big shout out to. Um, MC Terrorai, mm. you know, Kara McQuinday, mm. right? Um, he was the person that uh, told me all about Rhodesia, where his, uh, where his father was from. Wow. So, you know, things like that you don't think. You know, he's from Terrorai, from Rhodesia. Who cares, right? And then years later, it's like, damn, man. Like, I knew when it was Rhodesia before right. Zimbabwe, right. you know. And, uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a dope MC, and um, we were in... Section 2 of Co-op City, just for receipts, you know. <laughs> we had uh, DJG. We had Mystery. Um, was it Mystery? I'm trying to remember the, the third MC that was in the crew. And then um, the other crew was, uh, you know, out of the uh, Promenade in the Marble Hill area near Riverdale in the Bronx, on the west side of the Bronx. And so we were called the Avengers. So we had a guy named Jazzy J. Not, confu- not to not be confused with Jazzy J, Bambada's Jazzy J, right. but he called himself Jazzy J. Yeah. There was uh, Artie Art, Arthur Marklin, myself, and uh, you know, and that's what we did. You know. Um, now, what what years is this? Uh, we're talking about probably seventy eight, seventy nine, nineteen eighty. Those those are years. So you've been into and privy to the culture from Jump Street. Yeah, the first time I was introduced to hip hop was 1976 in June, right? And it was on the Circle Line uh, boat ride, and uh, you know I remember being there, and there was, um, you know, there was a, a school dance, we'll say, that was taking place, and Jam on the Groove played. Yeah, I didn't, I never knew that song. I just knew that the DJ, you know kept playing it back over and over and it wasn't like I saw the DJ mixing records you know you didn't have a concept to stand around and go what is he doing you know we just kept hearing the same thing over and over again and people were dropping to the floor and they weren't doing backspins but they were doing you know like corkscrews like you put your your right knee behind your left leg you drop down you spin around you come up um, the freak was just about coming out around that time and uh, that was my introduction and um then I used to make uh, pause button tapes, so I still have those pause button tapes. Oh, I love pause button tapes, yeah. which is lost on maybe yeah. a, uh, a lot of our listeners. Um, these are cassettes that you would actually make a mix on from the simple technology of just hitting the cassette tape. Right, and in our case, it was um, getting the breaks. And so mm-hmm. I would go down to uh, Downstairs Records on 42nd. Which is such an important place for yeah. the music because it was one of the few spaces where you would get put on to go and request certain records that were popping in the, in well, the in park jams. That's true, but there was a hierarchy to it. So let me explain how breakbeats worked 
for those who weren't in the hierarchy. Please. So you would hear tapes, and you would try to grab some things. And at that time, none of the records had their true names. So, like, you know, Take Me to the Mardi Gras by Bob James. It's called Breaking Bells, you know, or some sort of variation of that. Um, catch a Groove was Catch a Groove, right? But you didn't know it was by Juice. Um, Big B, Billy Squire. Um, Fruit Song, which was a reggae song that was sped up to 45. You know, there was all these different breakbeats. And while those were kind of staples that kind of made their way around either through word of mouth or you would hear them on a tape or somebody would tell you if you heard them at a jam. Then there was um, you trying to find them. And so, you know, myself, I would look to my parents' records and I actually did find a couple of breaks. You know, one of them was Harry Nielsen's Rainmaker. And I will, to this day, give myself props for having that record before anybody. Now I'm sure other people discovered it, but here's the here's the thing about that record. That Harry Nilsson record, um, I think had the most beautiful girl, I think that was the song. And there were only some of the forty five had on the flip side Rainmaker. So it has this drum beat boom, 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 boom. First day in August, last spring within May, right? So I had a copy of that. And I wanted to get another copy. Then I was down in the village. So not every, you know, you didn't always go to downstairs records because you played top price. You know, if you want a record, it was like five, ten dollars for forty-five. So if you could figure out that record and you could go to another store and get it, that's how you were able to save money. Yeah. So I remember I went down to um, I was at the store and I saw the record and I flipped it on the other side and I was like, oh, this must be it, and I played it. And then I hear somebody in the back, what's the name of that record? And I turn around, it was Africa Bambata. And, you know, and Bam, you know, at that time was feared. You know, I mean, yeah, we knew him, Zulu Nation, all that, but he was still, Zulu was still not to be toyed with, right? So I love this sound view, so that kind of helps, but it was like, oh, snap, that's him. And he's asking, what's the name of his record? And I go, I think it's, um, you know, first day in August, right? So I don't say it's Rainmaker, <laughs> you know? You don't want to put him on. No, no, I'm not trying to put him on, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so he goes, um, he goes up to the counter to find out something. I, I, I forget why he went up to the counter or whatever. But there were like four records, so I took all of them. And, you know, and I went up and paid for, you know, the records I didn't need for. But I was like, nobody's getting this record. And uh, I would say about a year later, I'm hearing this Armory Jam and Sundance is on there. And then I hear, you know, first day, then August, you know. Now, you know, the, the joke was, and I said this to him when I, when I ran into him about that. Like, man, you all tried to get that record for me and I had it first. And he's like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. But that's that's my claim to fame that I definitely had we, <laughs> that breakbeat. Yeah. But but I think all of us You got a lot of other claims to fame. <laughs> but I think everybody at that time always was trying to find that one record yes, yeah. that you could be Finding like, the fresh, finding, finding the new, some, right? Finding it's, something it's, it's new. Built yeah. in built into the culture really. And going to downstairs, 
there was that hierarchy. So I've been downstairs when Flash and others had gone there, right? And keep in mind, you know, you just, you know, you don't know these people. I don't know them like that. So it's like, oh, that's Grandmaster Flash. Right. You know, you, so you'd Flash, only seen them. I, yeah, I, there. Presume, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, there's right. all kind of people would go down there, right. so you would see folks. Yeah. But those people had juice, and so you know, here you go, man. Here's your two copies of Catch a Groove for five bucks, and you're sitting there in the background trying to ear hustle, like, yo, can I get a copy of that? Yeah, ten dollars. No, I just need one. Ten dollars. You know, so um, that's how it was. But if you went to downstairs, you could probably find just about every breakbeat, and they would accommodate you. And um, you know, give you the the record by its false name, <laughs> you know, whatever street name you had, or sometimes you just hung out there and hoped that you could, you know, you know, uh, soak up some game. Like so, that's how it was. But the trick was to take those records, um, figure out the name of those records, and then go to another store. Right. And get yeah. yeah. So you know, I stayed in Riverdale for a while. So that was the white part of town. And you know there were record stores up there on Broadway, and and um, now what, what what did your folks do? Um, my father drove a truck. My mom was uh, somebody who worked in a bank. One of the first black people to work in a bank. And um, and what did they think about your you know early steps into this emergent youth culture? You know, they thought that. It was kind of corny that I was playing these records that made no sense, you know, like Trans Europe Express, you know, like listen to this. It's like, well, what, what? I don't get it, you know. Listen to this. Here's a computer games, Yellow Magic Orchestra. This what you like, you know? <laughs> so I don't think my parents ever heard me rhyme, right? So I don't think they knew that that's what I did, you know, on my free time, um, and. You know, and, and my pops at the time didn't know that his pristine turntable, which was belt-driven um, on a couple occasions, had left the house, you know, and went to, you know, uh, you know Arthur Marklin's house <laughs> to supplement his parents' turntable where, you know, we tried to mimic and do what we saw going on. Right. So that's how that was. You know, that, that's for the people who were in that second tier. Right. Now, yeah. what, what drew you to rhyming? Um, I was good at it. I was actually a pretty good MC, and people who have heard my tapes liked them, and I MC'd actually when I moved out to Cali. And I did, uh, actually did a song called South Africa, which was played during a apartheid rally. Oh, Never right. made a record, but I was actually a pretty good rhymer. Yeah, well, you um, got the voice for sure. I don't know if I have the voice, but I definitely had flow. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't say I was a battle rapper or anything like that, but I definitely was no slouch. And I have nice size rhyme book and a lot of tapes that we did. Um, you know, so that was my thing. You know, I could definitely, definitely get down. But when I moved out here, and what brought, I got you, what more, brought you out here? Two things. My mom had moved out here while I was still in high school. And so I stayed in New York to finish up and, um, you know, stayed with my grandparents and, um, you know, was back in Soundview. And it made no sense for me to move out to Cali with them and not complete my years at Bronx Science. 
So I went to science with Barry Bistro was there, and there at the time, a kid from Kid and Play. Right. You know, um, so many folks really. I mean, even since have gone rock, rock sciences. Yeah, but at that time, you know, we came out that era. Yeah. Um. But you know, Grandmaster Flash performed there. You know, uh, Breakout. Hmm. The first time I seen Shaw Rock was at Science. Had a dance there. Tewit Clinton was down the street. Um. But I moved out here. When I came out here, I was of an age where my mom was still, you know, my legal guardian. And so I was a California resident, technically, even when I lived in New York, which allowed me to get California prices for, for tuition. Well, actually, I was the last one under the old rules to get, you know, the California residency price. So I made, I was going to go to Howard Howard was going to give me X amount of dollars for financial aid. You know, Cal Berkeley was like $200 a semester if you were a California resident. You know, so my mom was like, you know, um, you're still of age, so you're going to go to you're going to go to Cal. And they tried to flip the rules on us when we came. My mom went down there, had a conversation with the president, David Gardner, and he even said, "You will be the last person." Wow. who will get to into get UC Berkeley under these old rules because they had changed it. Um, and, you know, and that, the rest is history. So you're, you're a New York hip-hop kid coming to live in California. Mm-hmm. What, 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 I mean, that must have been disconcerting. What, was there a scene? What was the cultural scene, so music it's a, scene it's a huge It's a huge cultural divide and difference. Um, you know, obviously I'm up on the campus, so I'm not in the East and West Oaklands. Um, I'm running into a lot of people from L.A., so people heard about some of this, and it was an interesting type of encounter with people because it was into funk, and it was into a different brand of funk than I was. You know, Roger Zapp and all that was their thing, and it was about dancing and, you know, and people, you know, and it'd be like, oh, yeah, there's somebody that rhymes this guys out of, you know, Richmond, Commander C, you know, they rhyme, you know, so it was something like that, but that was not their main focus. Their focus was funk, Mm. and I used to rhyme at some of the parties over Rick James, you know, um, I came up under a DJ that was here by the name of Ben Gold, and so he would throw all the big parties, and I would go to the parties, and he'll let me rap at the end, so I kind of had a little rep for that. And, and what was that reception like? I mean, I, I imagine people, that those people, might be people. some of the first parties people might have heard a rapper live. No, they record. heard rap before, but they never heard it like that. Word. And so, um, yeah, people, you know, people liked it. It was like, oh man, you're pretty good at that, man. That's that's good, um, you know. And then eventually, I I started to DJ, and um, by about eighty four, eighty five, I completely switched over into DJing. I mean, it's this. You know, if you, this, there's definitely video up at the UC Berkeley archives because I used to put on a, an event called, um, uh, what was it called? It was the Day of Hip Hop or something like that. So I brought all these things together. So there is, there's probably someone on YouTube with me on there going way back, nice. you know, to that time. So I don't know if it has me rhyming, but, you know, there's definitely tapes. In, in a lot of witnesses that seen that. Well, so, you know, of course, 
I know you as a DJ on the radio, as a journalist as mm -hmm. well, and you know, late historian and archivist. Um, you switch from rhyming to DJing. What what made you make that transition? It was just easier to do. People weren't there was no community for rhyming in the same way. Mm. You know, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a an activity. It wasn't a prevalent activity the way it was when I was in New York. And you got to remember, I'm in a crew. Um, but you also got to remember, by the time I'm leaving New York, right, records are being made. And so once we realized records were being made, there was an attempt to maybe step up our skill level and see if we could get to make records. But, you know, it's like, how are we going to make a record? Who do you talk to? Do we go down to Sugar? You know, so, and then when I moved out here, um, everything froze in time, right? Um, so, you know, a whole different world. And the, when I said it was a culture shock, when you're from New York, you're used to New York being such a centerpiece. So at that time, you know, I'm from New York, and people are like, ooh, New York, Harlem, the Bronx, you know, it kind of meant something, right? And it was only one city that was never impressed with your New Yorkness, and that was Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. is like, yeah, you know, we're chocolate city. You know, we're 90% black. So what, right? And so the when I moved out here, you know, people were like, they could care less about New York, right? You know, like Oakland was like, oh, you know, I have a cousin there. I went there once. There was no animosity or anything. So they didn't care. They didn't think. It, it didn't resonate. Like, you're from New York. There was none of that, like, ooh. It was just like, all right. Yeah, it was just a Just keep, keep moving. Right. And so years later, you can understand that Oakland has a very... Um, incredible history, you know. It's the home of the Panthers. Um, you know, my mom was friends with uh, Huey's brother, you know, Melvin. So those became my godparents. So, you know, so that's a whole rich history. It was the Raiders. It was the Oakland A's. And when you look back, you also understand that Oakland is a very, very strong strongly identified city in the Bay itself in general is that way. So the Bay doesn't have a second city complex. It's just the Bay. Right. And, you know, cities that are like that are like Detroit. It's just Detroit, right? And what I mean by that is, like, you go to the Bay and there's a reason why you don't see Bloods and Crips here. Because L.A. is 400 miles away and it's like, we don't do that. We have We're the Bay, We're yeah. the bay yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, same thing with Detroit. It doesn't really have Chicago's. You know, you go to Detroit, you're from Chicago. You step in Detroit, it's like, I'm from Chicago. And it's like, yeah, and, okay, this right. is Detroit, yeah. right? And so, same thing, you know. And so it's a very independent city. And it, it, it has a hustle mentality. And uh, a lot of that is where I cut my teeth. That's where I, you know, my adulthood years got formed. And um, in, in what way? In, in what way? In, in terms possible? of you know, there was obviously New York gave me a lot of foundation, but the Bay honed that the same way it did with Pac, who moved out here. Mm. The Bay is just a, it's a different type of place. It, it's a rough and tumble place. Um, it's a loving place. It's a, um, it's it's a you know when once you're nestled into it, you understand it's a hustle place, right? People look at things and they go, hmm, you know, BET is out. Well, we'll get our own BET. That's the Bay, right? right. The Bay's attitude is, oh, them cats is wearing gold chains. 
I don't want a gold chain. I'm going to own house deeds, right? So you talk to somebody like a 40 or somebody like, I got three houses. I got a chain. I got three houses, you know, and they'll, you know, that's what I got. You know, I own property. I bought up this block. So that, that sort of mentality of making a way out of no way, but on an entrepreneurial slash hustle tip is the thing that I picked up here. And so, you know, if you look at the things that I did early on that put me on the map, it was always that resourcefulness. Like, I'm not on the radio. Well, we'll figure out how to get on the radio. Now that we're on the radio, we're going to figure out what to do to elevate your position on radio. And so it was always the next step, but it was, it was methodical. It was a hustle motif, and it was one that was almost expected of you. Like, you're in this position, you better elevate up. And when you start looking at everybody that's come up at that time, let's say it's Sway and King Tech, myself, uh, Fred Reck, you know, um, you know, producers with Dre. I mean, we can go down the list. Um, all those artists, you know, from Mystic Journeyman down to Souls of Mischief um, to E40 to Too Short, it's all the same trajectory of people just looking at a situation and figuring out, okay, Here's the wall that's got to be climbed. How are we going to climb it? And this is how you do it. And with that hustle is not just, you know, the goal is not so much to get a job or to be put on and to be seen. I think people here kind of resign themselves to knowing that I'm not going to be on TV. I'm not going to be on radio, but I'm going to own the things that I create. I'm going to have, um, I'm going to have you know, what we now would call wealth. So I own all my right. I own all my interviews. You know, those types of things are, are gold. You know, um, I have, you know, um, those type of assets. And I think if you talk to my peers, they have those same things too. That's that type of mentality. So, Well, you've seen the development of the whole Bay Area scene. I mean, from mm -hmm. what sounds like and what I, I presume to be the nascent stages, and you're who I associate with um, a, a keeper of that history. Uh, well, let me, let, me, let me be clear about a couple of things. There's a black perspective that comes out of the bay, and then there's everybody else. And so there is a scene in the Bay Area, there's a funk movement that exists in the Bay that predates hip-hop the way that we know it. And at the same time that New York had hundreds of crews, you know, between the years 76 up into Sugar Hill Gang, right, the Bay has hundreds of garage bands in particular in Oakland. Three and four member bands, which are the equivalent to the three or four member crews that we have. And those bands attracted a lot of dancers. And these dancers were doing things like boogalooing, strutting, robotting. If you went down to LA, it was locking and popping and you know Fresno had its scene and so you have these this 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 ecosystem, this dance music ecosystem that exists. So the reason why I emphasize this blackness is because when hip-hop from New York emerges in the form of Sugar Hill, maybe myself or Kevy Kev who went to Stanford, you know, and others that are coming up, 
black folks are like, yeah, that kind of reminds me of Dolomite. Oh, yeah, that kind of reminds me of, you know, Red Fox, right? So they have, they reference it, y'all doing what my uncle did, right? So, yeah. so they might take bits and pieces. Oh, that's a different way of doing it, so they'll take bits and pieces. But they're not enamored with New York that way, so they take some of those things and they incorporate it into, oh, yeah, Tracy knows. What's sit that? down, Tracy. What's you that? you, you need to sit her down and get some of this, yeah. this history. Okay. She got this please, history. Please. Yeah. So... So that's Tracy Barlow, if you don't know. Of course, so, no, shout out. Yeah. So I know some stuff, but she knows everything. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that black folks took bits and pieces and they incorporated it into things that they were doing. And when hip hop shows up, there are people outside the black community, Asian folks, white folks, not so much Latinos, but, but other groups that become like, disciples of New York hip-hop. So they pick up everything and they're soaking up, oh, I've seen Beat Street and all that. And so a very interesting thing develops, which is you could be in an area where somebody like Too Short comes up and he's doing things that are going to be indigenous to Oakland. His style of music, you know, that, you know, Aunt Banks or you know, Al Eaton, who came from band culture, is doing mm -hmm. that slow rolling funk that everybody could get into. And you could have somebody else who is coming up who's like, didn't ever lived in Oakland, but knows hip hop from TV and what they've seen with New York and some of the artists that come out here who follow that, who would be like, too short, it's not hip hop. Well, what are you talking about? Well, you know, because he doesn't rhyme and, you know, so they have a New York aesthetic and then there's a black babe aesthetic. And that aesthetic, I think, of, of having your own way of presenting is something that you could find in L.A. You find it in Detroit. You find it everywhere. It's just not often held up as something that we needed to really explore further because the New York model has a date, time, and place, and a very strong uh, insistence that what they did is the only thing that matters when dance and vocal expression is something that was gonna happen and was happening all over the, the country at the same time. So, you know, the uniqueness is that I got to see both. You know, I got to come out of it as it was emerging in New York, and I got to see something, you know, that luckily I was able to see those parallels there. Yeah, no, that's, that's an amazing moment. I, I wonder if most cities who receive the export of hip-hop cultural practice go through a similar transition period where they're trying to incorporate local, indigenous style, sound, language. Well, eventually they do, but this is why I said with, with Oakland, it's its own city, and there's a few cities that are like it. So Detroit, I, I look to, you know, Oakland, maybe Houston, it's like that, right? These are cities that are kind of like, we're on we're on uh -huh. thing, yeah. right? Yeah. New Orleans is kind of like that, we're on we're on thing, right? Chicago was resistant to hip-hop because of house, and there was that hybrid of hip-hop. But Chicago had a, Chicago always had a second city complex. Yeah. Right? No. And it had a second city complex at the same time, it was also a juggernaut. 
So Chicago's footprint is seen in Milwaukee. Chicago's footprint is seen in Milwaukee and all these cities in the Midwest. Yeah. So it's Capital a big juggernaut. It's, yeah. it's like L.A. Yeah. And it's like New York, right? Um, but then I look to the cities mm. that are kind of like, yeah, you do that, Chicago. That would be Detroit. Right. We don't do that, right? right. right? So, yeah. and when you and that's where you find a whole different type of approach towards music. So, what is Chicago does its house in Detroit as techno, right. right? Right. You do juking, they do jitty, right? right? Yeah. So it's no mistake. Yeah. No, it's interesting. So, so of course, so you you, you saw it emerge and you saw it kind of form. Um, you were at what point did you start to kind of advocate for it um, as not only a practitioner but as someone who then went to the side of radio and began to incorporate some of that into what you would play or I, don't, I wouldn't say with an advocacy I just think it was a natural extension of what was happening I was DJing already um, so that was first and foremost and when I came into radio I came in under two people. One was a guy named Natty Prep, who was one of the people that was part of Time X Social Club in terms of how they kind of position themselves. He was doing a show called Music for the People, which um, they actually had to fight for. You know, like guns get pulled and shit goes all the way up to um, the California State Legislature, which is UC Berkeley Station, which you have to have the Sunday morning show. So I get trained through that. Um, and you know, why, why radio? Why did you gravitate toward radio? Because that was the place I could DJ. Right. You know, I could DJ there. So there was a bunch of people that was on that show. One is named CJ Flash, um, who was called LA Sounds. Um, there was another guy named Ricky Vincent who did the history of funk. And then I came on. And, um, and there was another guy named Billy Jam, you know, white dude, um, who pulled some strings so I could be approved to do a whole bunch of shows. You know, so I got my own show in 86, 87, on Monday night. And it was on that show I had a decision to make. Is like I could do flyers that said, listen to the show, or I could do a newsletter that explained what I was playing. So it's through that newsletter called the DB Report. That became the thing that we call advocacy. So that became um, um, a thing that I was printing out. Um, you come. How you doing? Oh, I was printing out um, records that I was playing, and it was a mixture at that time of, at that time, Latin freestyle and hip hop. And I would do a top twenty chart, and then underneath it, I would write a little something I was playing. So Miami bass was starting to come up, and I would use the station's email—not email, but their stamp system—and I would collect as many names and numbers as I could and I would send those those playlists out. And so that's kinda how I got known was through that. So I think at, at its high point it might have been sending out six hundred, seven hundred copies a week of that. And with um, the addition of this textual component where you were breaking down some of what I was just playing stuff on the radio, but it was the newsletters that people yeah. got to read. And since I took your name and address, it wasn't a thing like I needed to call or anything. I just you know, Chuck D got one. It's like, what is this? So that's how I met him. Um, Russell Simmons got one. That's how I met them. So it was sending these things out. So it allowed me not to have to have these awkward conversations, but you had like tangible stuff. 
and then I would put them in record stores and I left a little blank space so that you could put the name of the store at the bottom of the thing. So Star Records had their own playlist, Rasputin's, um, Leopold's, you know, the Pro's Record Pool. So there's all these different places that I would put those. And then I was using those newsletters in a very creative way to get hired. So I started sending them out to the big station, which was Cameo. And the tactic that I used was I got a black envelope with gold writing and I sent it to the people that ran the station. But then there was a fear of influence. So we look and we're saying, who's the secretary? Who's the other DJs? Who's the janitor? And we sent copies of that same newsletter to them. And so they, and then we would mention the station. It's like, oh yeah, you know, we would mention something and, and that's how I got to know them. And also I, I started inviting all the DJs onto the show to do a set. So it was, it was a little bit of hustle, was that hustle I was talking about. And then at some point, would, would artists reach out to you to get records broke? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And so that's how you began yeah. also to develop some of those relationships. Relationships to this day. Right. You right. know. Um, so, yeah, it was that. Those were, you know, from everybody from X-Clan on down. Um, it was because of the newsletter. Right, yeah. And you became kind of a... a if you were in the Bay, people would want you to play the record or to... Well, there was another station called KPU, which was a black-owned um, community station. So Sundays, that was their day. And they had a good relationship with Russell Simmons and Def Jam. There was KVSU with Kevy Kev on Sunday nights. And then we all formed together and formed this thing called the Bay Area Hip Hop Coalition. And then that's kind of... And then we changed the name of the Beat Report and we aggregated all that and so that made us all one unit but by then um, I was going back and forth to LA um, people were traveling the music industry had opened up a little more and we started to develop these different type of relationships you out of here? Mm -hmm. so you need to talk to her because yeah. you, grab a mic Cause I'm gonna. I want you to fill in. I'm gonna fill in the gap here. Sure. I mean, if you sit down, sit down, sit down. Okay, I have a moment. A moment. Okay. Yeah. Tracy was an dancer, choreographer, educator. Well, but more than that, because this is so. Because we're talking about how things trans transpire. So while I'm doing this stuff, you know, my show, her ass is in New York at the Latin Quarter. <laughs> you want to tell them about that? Yeah, so she's that, bringing Oakland flavor uh, to New York in the oh, middle of... Yeah, wow. so, yeah, so, she, yeah. This. I had this uh, unique experience of, um, I went to New York to study at the Alvin Ailey School. And I got into the hip-hop and house clubs in New York in the 80s, in like the mid to late 80s as well as the early 90s and there was a uh, annual event in New York called the New Music Seminar. It was a big music festival. Yeah, we all went to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I went to an event at the Latin Quarter and um, I remember the MC was like, okay, next we got somebody from Oakland. He was like, y'all got rap music out there? Th it, so it was like a period of time where it was unheard of that hip hop would be in any other place besides New York. And people laughed, 
And I remember when he said Oakland, I jumped up and I was like, hey. And it was like I was the only voice other than people laughing. And it was Hammer. And so MC Hammer came out and got down. And so it was so funny because I but then they, they learned. They booed him that day, right? They, yeah. They booed him. Yeah. Now, this is why I wanted her to tell this because at the time that they booed Hammer, he was huge in Oakland. Like, mm -hmm. you couldn't go nowhere. I mean, Hamill was like the guy. Yeah. So here he's the guy here doing everything that you need to do, putting, you know, him and Short putting the bay on the map. He goes to the Latin Quarter and gets booed. Mm. Yeah, and the Latin yeah. Quarter was a legendary spot. Yes. Yeah. You know, so I was blessed to go there a couple of times, like right before they closed. Um, but I'll never forget that. And then to hear that, him being booed and not really received at this event, you know, he goes on to make a song that, that sold millions of records. It turned his mother out as his response to the booing at Latin Quarter. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Wow. That's why he said, you ain't hitting in New York, Hammer. Yes. And he takes a breakbeat from New York, the anthem, mm -hmm. Apache, and mm -hmm. kills it Woo! and sells yep. 14 million goddamn records. Ain't that something? Yes. And then when people came out to Oakland, they realized like he's a real Oakland cat. Like he was no gimmick. Like he's a, a real dude. Mm -hmm. So you know, folks is like, don't let the genie pants fool you. <laughs> he's a high street bank boy. No. That's right. <laughs> Tracy, if you're ever in Chicago. Or yes. what, next time, next time in the bay, maybe I'll But her on, history of dance. Yeah, no, I, I no, know. That's, yeah. because that's the key. That's why I wanted her here, because I was telling them, like, you know, there was this vibrant dance scene that 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 existed, you know, prior to uh. and during the evolution of hip hop in New York, and so that dance movement that's here is critically important because now it's all umbrellaed, you know, and some of the moves that people would call hip hop. You know, it's like, well, where right. did but it, it come regional. from? But it was, yeah. but no, but a lot of stuff comes from here, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah man, that's yeah. what I said during the class. That's one of the things I I shared while we were doing the class mm -hmm. in there, and all the styles that came out of the Bay Area, yeah. and not just the Bay Area, actually California. Mm -hmm. Like when it comes to hip hop dance, yeah, what are and the foundations, the the foundations of hip hop dance? New York has top rock, b boying breaking, but all the boogaloo, popping, locking, robotting, all of those are California innovations from Southern California all the way up to the Bay. And not just innovations, but Michael Jackson had to come to those people to get his flavor from locking, which you could see him and them doing, to robotting, to moonwalking, all those are street stuff, not the other way around. And that's what's really important because I think when you see things on TV, you go, oh yeah, you all got it from Michael Jackson. No, you all got it from Michael Jackson. Right. He got they, it from, they got it from Big Louie down the block yeah, at, at the house party. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. You out of here? I like Chicago. Come through. I've only been there a couple of times. I look forward to going back. All right, yeah. Well, I, well we'd love to get more time with you when, when you're there. Yes, yeah. I would like that. Thank you. Thank all right. You, you all going yeah. there? <laughs> Yes, I'm gonna check out something. What's popping? Okay. I don't know. I, I, I guess they have about seven thousand people tomorrow. Supposed to be one of the big days. Yeah, that's what I hear. Forty and everybody's supposed to be down there. Where? Uh, tomorrow at um, you know that EA gaming stuff in Jack London. Oh, Jack mm -hmm. London. I'll be there. 
Mark. I'm gonna go with you. Let me get in that backpack. Or we, I mean, we how many people you got dancing? Let me be the fourth one. We, you know, we got to step into this play. But uh, before I let you go, it, it, you know, the reason why it's called the corner store is because you know that's like the local small yeah. market. But in in Oakland in the Bay, what do, what do they call them? What do they call like local uh, small convenience stores? Well, bodegas, not bodegas, but uh, mercados. Mercados, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. So this is like the the Mercado edition. Yeah, uh, we got to come back for like a round two with you, man, because I know that there's there's so much more. But I, I do. Yeah, there's a there's a lot there, um, and I appreciate the opportunity. I, I'll say this: is that everybody's history is important, and and you know what I'm telling is unique, um, but it's 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 unique, but it's also commonplace. What I mean by that is that. Tracy, when she was here, she told you she could have given you that history with a different angle, yeah. right? Because I'm a little bit older, so I have a different take on things than she does. But she's born and raised in Oakland, so there's going to be nuances and subtleties that she would bring to the picture that I wouldn't because she went to high school, you know? So she would tell you about the talent shows that existed and how that was our equivalent to block parties, right? That every day it's like... 100 talent shows with 100 bands, right? And that's where all these um, uh, dancers, you know, got known alongside bands. So they were competing with, you know, Jay King and the Unknowns. Jay King was a dancer, you know, before he was uh, Club Nouveau. But they had, you know, they had this incredible dance crew, the Black Resurgence, right, who started in 71 and wound up opening up for George Clinton in 76 and performing with Sylvester and being signed to their label and opening up for Mayor Diane Feinstein, not when, you know what I mean? And, you know, the black messengers and the, the battle between the messengers and the resurgence. Or we could talk about Jerry Renty and his group, One Plus One, who predates all that because he goes back to 67 and he's talking about, you know, how they come up with the Boogaloo, but the Boogaloo is showing up at high school football games because the best dancers were the mascots. So everybody learned the dances from the mascots who, you know, each school had like, you know, it'd be like Crazy Legs is the mascot of Dewey Clinton, right? And, you know, and, you know, and Ken Swift is the mascot of, you know, Andrew Jackson High, right? So you have that type of caliber of people. So that's how it was in the town. And so you had mascots that were coming in and they were doing these crazy dances that people would pick up and then they, then, then they got exchanged to talent shows and all that. So that's an important and very, very rich history that then morphs into um, the hip-hop day. You see what I'm saying? And, and, you know, people pick up and take bits and pieces. But almost everybody that you look at came out as a dancer first and then got into but you know when I'm when, when you hear somebody like Charlie Rock talk he's like don't forget Flash was a dancer right Melly Mel was a dancer right so you give that whole New York history a lot of those people were dancing early on too so well I, I, I just so appreciate your commitment to telling a story and telling a, a story as important as, as keeping the the, integ the integrity you have in telling the story right. um, 
so yeah, man, I, we, we skimmed the surface and kind of did like, you know, 20 years, and I want to I want to tell the next like 32. Okay. Uh, so, but I'm only 25. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll get the next we'll get we'll get the next five. But uh, I, I appreciate you, man, and 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 that, there's a lot more to say. And so you know, next time I'm in town or when you're whenever in Chicago, hopefully we can get to part two. Yeah. We'd be open to it. But uh, thanks so much for spending a little bit of time in the corner. Thank you. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.